It's time for OWC Radio, Tech Talk with Creatives, conversations with host Serena Catania. This is Serena Catania with OWC Radio. Maxim Jago, how are you this morning? We have so much to talk about. Fantastic. Thank you for inviting me on the show. So for those of you who don't know, who have had their head in the sand, Maxim Jago is a futurist. He's a filmmaker. He's an author and an amazing motivational speaker. The one thing I love about you most, Maxim, is your creativity, your big brain, Goodness. and your kind heart. So <laughs> there's so much to talk about. You've you've written seven books, or you're in the process of writing books. You've just directed your first feature. You're at the Toronto Film Festival right now, and I dragged you into talking to me. You are organizing an amazing conference, which we won't talk about yet, but I'll let you say that. And then you're going to Tokyo. So I don't even know what to start with. Let's start by the fact that you just directed your first feature, which which is an amazing accomplishment for anyone. <laughs> wow. Thank you. Yeah. You know, when I was a kid, my dad said, say yes first and find out how later and you'll live a more interesting life. And he never mentioned getting enough sleep. I didn't realize that was a limitation of the advice. He was <laughs> I always tell people I can sleep when I'm dead. <laughs> Well, my, one of my favorite quotes on the internet, and, and I'm sure it's traceable, is um, they say, you, you, in fact, you and I have spoken about this before, you're not supposed to arrive serenely at the grave. You're supposed to tumble up, skidding across the ground into the grave, covered in cuts and bruises, saying, wow, what an amazing ride. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> one of my favorite parts of that quote is, or misquote, is that is the cuts and bruises it is, you know, it's okay to get the scar tissue, you know, it's okay that it's hard. And it's not, it's, we have this culture where any kind of suffering or pain is unacceptable. And I think that that's a misunderstanding of what pain is there for. It's a message, it's telling you something. It's not necessarily to be avoided. In fact, you should really engage with it and find out what it's telling you. But that's a whole other conversation. So I set out to be a feature film director when I was 15. And it turns out that I wasn't wealthy enough, tall enough, connected <laughs> enough. It took a long time. So I, I've been working on projects, directed about 30 uh, short films of one kind or another, and uh, did okay with those. But just directed uh, a no-budget, um, amazing concept, supernatural thriller. And I'm, I'm, we're just in post now. We're just editing it. And where was it filmed? We shot in a beach house in Massachusetts, um, in a place called Duxbury. And, uh, you know, the, the, uh, there's, a, there's a famous guy in Hollywood. His name is Dove Simmons, who, who has a workshop he's been running for 20 years on how to make your first feature film. And he's an amazing speaker. Um, I actually saw his presentation 20 years ago and saw it again about two years ago. And it hasn't changed. It's the same message. Just go and make a film. And his, mm-hmm. his recommendation is, uh, if you want to make a first mm-hmm. feature, horror always sells. Go to a cabin in the woods with eight kids and you know, metaphorically, artistically chop them up, edit that into a you know, film film the prosthetics and the special effects of them being chopped up for some reason, and then edit that and you've made a feature film. Ew, sorry. And, uh-uh. Not for me. <laughs> yeah, I'm not a horror guy. No. <laughs> and so that's that's kind of the problem for me. As I, I don't like, personally, I just, I, I don't mind psychological horror, but I don't like gore. It's not my thing. And mm-hmm. I know, you know, a lot of people love it and that's fine, um, but I, I didn't want to make that kind of film. So I, I, I came up with a concept where, so as a, a very good friend of mine is, um, 
um, Mexican by birth, the actress Andrea Sweeney, she's a phenomenal actress. And she, if you met her, she's blonde hair, blue eyes, green eyes. She's got, she's totally California girl. But actually, she was born in Mexico, in Monterrey, Mexico, and, and Spanish is her first language. There's no way you could tell from her accent. I know you, you really can't. I had no idea when I first met right? her. It just doesn't show until she, she switches to Spanish. So I came up with a concept, and the gist of the concept is that, um, well, I don't want to give too much away from the story, but the gist of the concept is that we go to a house and we uh, something takes control of her and through her begins speaking Spanish. So she gets taken over by this entity in a, in a house. And it's beautiful. You know, her performance is, is great. And, but we shot it. Uh, we improvised everything. And so I came up with 77 scene concepts and we had, you know, the key language that had to be in some scenes, obviously, to drive the plot forward. Essentially, we improvised the scenes and uh, it was an incredibly efficient way of filming. You can only really do that if you're working with a true professional, because a really professional actor, you know, if you've, it's a, with theatre, you can keep it alive, you can change it every night. But with film, if you've done it once, one way, it has to be that way every time. Right. And it takes extraordinary skill as an actor to remember the way you moved, you know, the blocking, the the continuity, the phrasing that you used to allow the different performances to cut together. So very impressive working with Andrea. And and I'm really happy with the result. We did loads of practical effects. So, you know, we got fishing wire and had things falling over and it's just great. So what can you tell people about why after making 30 shorts, you finally did your feature? What took you over the edge to do that? Oh, my goodness. Oh, my goodness. So I'm I, always I, asking you the hard questions. <laughs> no, I really want to share this with you because I love I love getting to the heart of the matter. So I spent I mean, you know, I've been busy. I've been goodness. I, I've, I've had a lot of jobs. I've done a lot of things. And of course, that takes time out of your calendar. Absolutely. By the way, for those listening who don't know, Maxim is one of the top trainers with the Adobe team. Oh, thank you. If you go online, like I went online because I wanted <laughs> to learn more about audition and whose voice pops up? Maxim. You know, he wrote the book on Premiere Pro. It's a good gig. I was lucky to get it. <laughs> I, I write the official book on Adobe Premiere Pro and I write the official book on Adobe Audition. And I recorded about 1,800 tutorials on post-production now. Mm. And it's funny because I have a radio voice, right? And so mm. people will meet me at conferences and film festivals and they feel like they know me, but they're not quite sure why. And you know, because then nobody knows what I look like. They just know what I sound like. And I get this strange look on their faces because learning is hard. You know, it's tiring. And so they, you get this look on people's faces. They're feeling, I, I know that person. I don't know why, but I don't feel good about knowing that person. <laughs> Do they owe me money? I don't know what it is. <laughs> and then, so I've got this line now. So when I meet people like that, I say, you know, I say, oh, wait a minute. Maybe it's this. And I say, now let's click on the file menu and we'll open some clips and put them in the timeline. And everyone says, oh my God, you were in my head. So, um, <laughs> You're in my head. I love that. I, I It's nice. It's beautiful. All right. So I interrupted you. I want to get back to. Oh, yes. yes I, but yeah. I okay, wanted so. people to know you have several sides to you. You are truly a renaissance man and don't get embarrassed, but you really are. So let's go back to the question, which was why after 30 short films, what took you over the edge to finally making your feature? OK, here's the problem. The problem is the advice that you will hear as an independent filmmaker on how to make 
a feature film, not a short film, because short films are often concept pieces. It's hard. To, everyone knows it's hard to make money on a short. And if people invest in it, they're just giving you money, right? So for a feature film, it's a product, it's a business, mm-hmm. and people investing in it expect to get a return on their investment, as they would with any business. In fact, it's common to form a company around each feature film project just for accountancy purposes. It makes it much cleaner. Mm-hmm. Sure. So why can't you do it? And the reason you can't do it is that the advice is usually written by the studios. And here's their advice. Come up with a great concept, write the treatment, produce a screenplay, show the screenplay to potential investors and show it to the agents of actors that are bankable. And bankable means you have to recognize who they are without Google on both sides of the Atlantic. That's the bar that you're aiming for. Now, it's okay if you say something like, oh, they played so-and-so and such-and-such such a thing. You can give a clue. But they've got to be, people have got to know who they are mm-hmm. on both sides of the Atlantic. And and so, you know, and then if the agent likes the screenplay and the investors like the sound of it, then they, you know, the agents show it to their clients and you have a list of names and then one of the clients, one of the actors will read it and they like it. And then you get what's called a letter of interest, an LOI. Um, and Or you can get an MOU, even a memorandum of understanding. That could just be an email if you like it. And then you go back to the investors and you go back and forth between the agents and the investors getting more and more commitment. And then mm-hmm. bingo, you've got contracts mm-hmm. and the money mm-hmm. goes in the bank and you make the film. And the thing about that narrative is that it's nonsense. Well, that's why we call it development hell, right? And we call it development hell. Anyway, go ahead. Yeah, it's nonsense. Right, it's a chicken and egg, right? So you can't get the money without the cast. You can't get the cast without the money. And here's why. The cast, they don't want to water down their brand. That's how they make their money. And the agents really only want fully financed films because they are feeding their families with their commission. This is a really important thing to be aware of. They're not just being bad people. They're, they live on their commission. Mm-hmm. So don't be angry with them if they don't forward your no-budget indie hiking movie, whatever it is. You know, this is their livelihood. And then you, the investors, these days, the only metric that you can use to be sure that you will return money on investment unless you have an upfront deal with, you know, Amazon Studios or Netflix or Apple now, they're getting a, a big time into media production. They're just going to give you a flat fee and you're, and you're done and you're going to negotiate it in advance. But they're the same challenge, which is if you don't have famous people in your film, why would anybody click the button? Now, if it's a genre that people really love, even though they've mm-hmm. never heard of the cast, they're probably going to click it. I'll watch any superhero movie. I'll watch a one-star superhero movie, coffee and ice cream, <laughs> and, and good. But for most people, what swings them thinking, oh, I'll check out that film, right? That's <laughs> the tipping point, is that it has a name that they recognize, and that's a branding exercise, because it tells the audience what kind of film to expect. There's a certain standard of production value. There's a certain type of, of quality and genre and so on. Now, this is a problem, because the investors are not going to commit. For the investors, they can't invest unless you can show metrics that indicate that they're going to make money. And because, of course, how can they just take a risk on it? It's a lot of money. The, so they're not going to put the money in the bank until you've got a commitment from actors. But the agents are not going to go to the trouble of reading your screenplay, reading your treatment, negotiating with their client, dealing with the legal fees to get the letter of interest written in a way that they're satisfied with and all of the consequences until you definitely have the money because they're inundated with requests. So which one do you look at? You look at the one that has the money. So this is the catch 22. And what I realized eventually, what I realized is that a friend introduced me to a friend at a casino in Las Vegas who taught me how to really play blackjack. And she told me that all of the official books that people use to play blackjack 
were secretly funded by the casinos. And they are all slightly wrong in a way that slightly favors the casinos. Oh my goodness, seriously? The number that you should take another card on and the number you should stick on, it's just slightly wrong. The odds are just slightly in favor of you going bust. And and it just slightly favors the casinos. So for me, the problem as an independent filmmaker is that, let's go back to my narrative. Let's go back to the story, okay? So you write an amazing screenplay. Let's just imagine it's amazing. I have a screenplay that I won a national award for in the UK that I'm, I'm raising the finance for. So you've got this screenplay that you really believe in and people love it and people read it and they say, oh my goodness, how, when can I see this film? This is incredible. You contact the agent for a famous person and the agent passes you to their assistant's assistant <laughs> who politely in a sort of fluffy cotton wool kind of way, and I'll never say no, says, oh yeah, in a kind of vague way, yeah, if you want to, you can email that to me. Here's my email address. And you say, thank you so much. Really appreciate your time today. I'm going to email it over and I'll include the log line in the synopsis. And let me know if you want the treatment. Thank you for your time. And they say, absolutely. And then a week goes by and another week goes by and you feel like, well, it's been a couple of weeks. I should follow up. And you email them to say, hey, I just want to check in with you. How, how's it going with the screenplay? You know, we've had great responses to it. I'm, I'm hoping you'll, you're, you're enjoying it. And they don't reply to your email. And then you leave it another week and you email them again and they don't reply to your email. And then you, uh, you call the agent's office and you say, I just want to check that you're getting my emails because I said I would email it to you and I haven't heard back. I just want to make sure you've got it. And one of two things happens. You get the secretary who says, oh, they're out of the office at the moment. I can tell them you called. What's your number? Mm-hmm. Or you speak to the, the assistant's assistant and they say, oh yeah, I'm so sorry. Um, I did get your email. Um, we're a bit um, backlogged at the moment, but um, you know we should be able to get to it next week. Basically, there's a, a lovely lady friend of mine was explaining recently that, that, that if you're a girl and you're not interested in a boy and you don't want to be rude about it, you use the fade out technique where you just reply slower and slower and slower and shorter and shorter messages until the boy gives up. And that's basically what, what happens when you contact the agencies. Nobody is going to say no because they don't want to turn down the next Spielberg, mm-hmm. Tarantino, mm-hmm. Lucas. So what they do is they say yes in a non-committal way. I think it's called ghosting. It's called ghosting. Yeah, well, eventually, yeah, eventually, well, ghosting is just completely not replying at all. So eventually they ghost you and you just get no response whatsoever. And so now, Mm. oh, hang on a second, this narrative where all I have to do is write a great screenplay and send it to people. Okay, that's not working. I know, I'll go to the money people. So you go to the money people and they say, wow, amazing Mm -hmm. pitch. Love the way you present that story. It's so fantastic. So, so um, yeah, send over the screenplay and, and we want to see the metric. So you spend weeks, months producing a beautiful presentation deck that's got all the potential revenues. But you have to be honest. So you show the low, medium and high and you show comparable films and you have the risk warning in there. And, and you send over the treatment, all of the visuals and you take photos and you, you do a finishing on them and you do a little teaser and you do all of that. And you shoot it and you send it. And then they look at it and they say, so um, so who's in your package? <laughs> right. Uh, you know, who have you got commitments from? And you say, well, you know, that's kind of not the stage we're at. You know, we're at the end of development now, so we're ready to go into that stage. We'd like you to commit funds for the film, and then with that commitment, we can go to the uh, we can go to the agencies and get the money. And then the agency, and then the investors say, wow, you know, loved your project. Um, uh, it's a pass. Now, what happens is, and of course, you don't want to push the. As you say, it's not for us. You know, a great project, but we're out. And eventually, you'll find an investor who, you know, sometimes, and it's. A, it's a terrible thing, but you know, in a bar, late at night, you'll get 
them to admit why they said no. And they'll say, they'll tell you, well, you don't have anybody attached to the film, which means that it's just a random, who knows? We've got no way of knowing if the film's going to even get distribution without names attached. And so we don't want to get into a debate about it, but we're always going to pass on that because you don't have any metrics. And by metrics, I mean, you have no credible sales estimates. And without distributions, uh, my friend Elliot um, Grove runs a Raindance Film Festival. And uh, I was hosting a panel he was on some, some years ago where we were talking about the, the number one thing that matters for a film. And his argument was it's distribution. Because if you don't have distribution, you don't have a product. The money changes hands when people buy tickets for your film mm-hmm. or they rent it on iTunes or Amazon mm-hmm. or, or whatever it is. So what do you do? So this is the chicken and egg. And if you are a studio and you contact the agents for a famous actor, the, the agent will definitely pick up the phone. You will get the agent. If you have an IMDb Pro account, you've got all the phone numbers for all the agents, for all the actors. You can call their office direct. But if you're not calling from a studio, forget it. Now, if you are related to somebody famous, go forth, put them on your deck for your presentation. You're probably going to raise the finance for your film. But if you're an indie filmmaker and you're just coming in cold, that advice is all false. And I spent years jumping through every hoop, doing every single thing that every self-proclaimed expert told me to do. And it was all false. Mm Mm-hmm. Yes. I'll give you an example. One more example, and then I'll tell you how we fixed it. So I came up with this project, Orpheus Rising, gorgeous love story thriller, a real love story thriller. We wanted $6 million for it, but it's my first feature as a director. I've got awards as a short film director, but nobody cares about those, really. So, you know, you get into the into the, the investors and they say, well, when you've got famous people, let's let us know. I'm abbreviating, you know, weeks of conversations, of course, but that's the gist of it. So then we came up with a project that was really small budget, Jolly's Garden, gorgeous psychological thriller set in a beautiful underground, mysterious garden. And a uh, great project, great team already attached to both of those projects. And we thought, well, you know, we can shoot this for $200,000. So, so let's go for it. Let's do that. And then what we found is that the real film investors want to invest millions. Mm-hmm. So you get famous people in the film and then they raise the profile and you, you make your money back. They don't want to invest in a small <laughs> film. And the people that would invest in a small film only really want to invest so they can hang out with famous people. I had a meeting with some venture capital investors. I thought, you know, this is money, right? I'll talk to them. And I met with these guys that ran a big VC meeting group thing. And I showed them the numbers for this film. And I said, you know, we're very confident. We can't commit, obviously, to saying it'll definitely happen. That's just not, it's risk. But we're very confident that investors will make a minimum of four times their investment. And this guy looked at me and said, Maxim, you should please never use that number again when you're speaking to investors. Unless you can show investors that they will make 10x, that's 10 times the amount that they invested as profit, as a return on an investment, then just nobody's going to be interested. And I felt like, are you, what? Exactly. Name one business where you're going to commit to 10 times return on the investment. It's just insane. You just can't, it would be be unethical to say that. Not if you're telling the truth, right? You you can't do that. Right. And so, Mm -hmm. yeah. And and if you don't tell the truth, you ruin it for everybody else because you get disinterested investors who feel they've been cheated. We went round and round and round and round and round. Now, so first of all, I met with a group of investors who committed the first 20% of the budget to Orpheus Rising. We have a list of 40 names of actors that we'd like, 10 each for uh, the four main roles. And the deal we've, we've negotiated is 
subject to us getting a letter of interest from any one of the 40 names on that list, they will commit the first $1.2 million to the project. So obviously, I'm cock-a-hoop about that. That's fantastic. That's awesome. Because everybody will offer you that. <laughs> I was having a meeting with an investor, and I, I have a great connections with some incredible international technology companies, you know, as Adobe, Avid, Blackmagic, HP, Dell. These companies are just so wonderful. Core Live, uh, it's just a long list. And, uh, you know, this guy was saying, well, why don't, you, why don't you give us all of your all of your sponsors, and we'll finance lots of other films, and then we'll finance yours. And I was saying, well, that's not the, you know, Let's do it the other way around. I like the sound. Wait a minute. Excuse me. We'll finance a lot yeah. of other films and then we'll get to yours. Okay. Thank you very much. Goodbye. Yeah. <laughs> okay. And then he said, but you know what? I'm pretty confident that we can get the last 20% for you. And I was so frustrated because this gentleman had been having, you know, legitimate conversations with me about investing in a film. And I said, I said, look, you know, everybody wants to give you the last 20%. And the reason is because up to that point, the previous 80%, they've done their due diligence, they've checked the legals. Everyone's already checked this project in depth to get to the point where they've invested four out of five parts of the budget. My mother could give me the last 20% <laughs> of the budget for a film, which she's had never had anything to do with film in her life. And so, no, that's not of interest. The hard part is the first 20%. If you can get the first 20% committed to a film, it shows credible investors that you you have credibility and that your project is authentic. It's very important part of the finance. So then in the meantime, for Jolly's Garden, the Girl in the Garden film, I've now got a very credible investor supporting the project who is confident that he can get us two and a half million dollars to shoot the film. And we're in that process right now, which is just great because it means I can actually pay people. And you know, the thing with film is you can make it for any budget, really. It's just, I love those filmmaker meme Instagram accounts where they have client expectation yeah. versus client budget, you know, and it's a lion that you get a kitten. So, <laughs> so in the meantime, we were just trying to look at what is the problem. And then I started, and you know, as soon as you tell somebody you're going to make a feature film, everybody becomes an expert and everybody tells you that you're wrong. Mm -hmm. Just every, like whatever you were going to do, you're doing it the wrong way. You know, you could be at a coffee shop and the guy making the coffee is saying, well, I read an article and it turns out you should do this. So it's a bit of an issue. So what do you do about that? Well, I started looking at the first features of famous directors and I noticed two significant things. Number one, they had no money. And number two, the films were frankly not that great. You know, they showed a lot of promise. They had a consistent look and feel. You felt like there was, the hand of a director was on it. You know, somebody somebody made that film. But a lot of them are not particularly Fantastic films, to be truthful. I mean, they're, they're good, but they're not amazing. The second film they make is phenomenal. Mm -hmm. Given a budget and a professional crew, you see what they can do. But the, the first feature they make is often, you know, it's okay. But, you know, you had one day to shoot something you needed five days for, and the camera broke halfway through the shoot, and everyone was tired. And, you know, what do you expect? You know, you, you worked within your means. So we came up with a concept where it would be no budget, no cost, Fantastic concept, all about performances and an engaging, compelling story. That's awesome. So that the other projects, it's no longer my first feature. I've now directed a feature film. So all of the negotiations are about directing the second feature film. Mm -hmm. And this is very powerful, very powerful, because people are nervous about investing in first-time directors. So for me, I'm always optimistic in any situation in life where there is a positive way forward. And I only get depressed when I feel like, I'm just powerless, mm -hmm. which is a very human thing. You know, control is really important for us as a species. And if you feel like you're out of control, it can have such a big impact on your health and your well-being. 
So having something positive you can do about it is really critical. So that's what we've done. We've shot this beautiful, fantastic, crazy supernatural thriller that just all this wonderful stuff emerges. We had a, a very young um, director of photography who I've been mentoring for a while now, at, who's still at film school. And I said, you know, I'll, uh, it's no budget. You're not going to get paid, but I'll fly you over, give you accommodation and food. And, you know, I'm even going to give you the director of photography credit on the film. She's not even out of film school yet. Wow. Who is this? Tyler Oakes. He was great to work with. Uh, keep an eye out for Tyler. Uh, Tyler Oakes, a uh, very impressive young man, very professional. And, you know, he's learning from me about composition. He's learning about production. And that's the point, right? Mm-hmm. He's there to learn also to be an absolutely invaluable member of the team. And he's the director of photography. But for this is an example, Maxim, of why you're so successful, because you know what you're doing. So many first films the DP knows more than the director and the director hires a DP who's really, uh, you know, able to teach the director while they're filming this way. It's the other way around. I think it's wonderful. I'm really anxious to see this. I think, yeah. So you're, (laughs) I want to see this thing. So you're in post now, right? Yeah. And you know, by the way, I think this is very good advice. I hope Everyone who wants to make films and who has been through the process is listening to this because Maxim has just taken years off of your process. Oh, my goodness. If you listen to what he's telling you, seriously, I see this all the time. People come to me and they say, how can I get my film made? And they, they this is great advice, Maxim. You know, and, and speaking of great advice. Make a film that you can make. Yes, yes, absolutely. That's, you know, so look at Edgar Wright. I was, uh, Edgar Wright was a made of mine at film school years ago in 19 i've got a tape in a box somewhere of Edgar and i shooting at each other as dressed as doctors because we had to do a made-up commercial for <laughs> a good blood campaign and Edgar said well why don't we just have a scene where we're dressed as doctors shooting at each other so i was saying okay i'm in let's do it and the last shot of the film is my forehead exploding with its terrible prosthetics <laughs> it just looks like a massive plasticine stuck on my head and it's great it's a freeze frame with a blood bottle exploding it was really good fun And Edgar and I were working on his first feature, Fistful of Fingers, for a while. And this is really good life lesson, right? So this, I'm 19, so I'm 45 as of about two weeks ago. So Happy birthday. Thank you. (laughs) Yeah, 26 years ago. And Edgar had already made a a kind of mess around version of Fistful of Fingers with his friends before coming to to Bournemouth where we were at film school together. And he wanted to remake it with a bigger budget. And I kept saying, let's, you know, let's make a... Let's make a try to get a budget together. We'll get some sponsors. We'll get some free stuff, and we'll try to shoot this properly and make a good quality film. And Edgar kept saying, "Look, I just want to direct my first feature, and let's just get it made." And a few months into the process, I pulled out. You know, in the nicest possible way. You know, I had a huge respect for Edgar. Um, you know, he was very talented even then as a director. And I and I said, "You know, we're trying to make different films, and I feel like let's part ways now, where we're where we're friends and we're on great terms. There's no big conflict. We're not having an argument, but I think we're trying to make different films, and so." let's part ways on this project and I'm really a director rather than a producer anyway. So what, you know, find someone who's really a producer. I don't think he ever came. <laughs> he went forth and he made Fistful of Fingers. You can find it, right? And it's a kind of a spoof Western. And you you watch that film, right? It, it shows that you can see Edgar's style in it. You can see his comedy style. You can see that you can see the hand of the director, right? And he, it's, I don't know how to say this. No, let me say it this way. It's a great achievement. He made a feature film. And I went off to try to make my first feature film that was 
you know, getting our budget together. And all the everybody was telling me, this was 25, 26 years ago, everybody was telling me that uh, $8 million was a very good budget for a first-time feature film director. And that was a realistic, low budget. <laughs> Utterly unrealistic. Absolutely. Totally untrue. So I'm working, 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 and I'm listening to everybody's advice, and I'm going round and round and round and round the houses. In the meantime, I did a lot of other stuff. I became a futurist. I started consulting for all these organizations, NASA and Microsoft and and, you know, speaking at conferences, I did a lot of stuff. I traveled the world and I'm happy with the life I've lived. But looking back, I'm learning the lesson now that Edgar knew when he was 19, which is just get it made. Make the film you can make. Because when people in the industry look at the film you've made and they find out the budget you had, they are going to think, wow, that you achieved this with no money at all is incredible. Let's give that person some money and see what mm -hmm. they can do with a pro team. And so nobody's expecting your first feature film to mm -hmm. be Avatar mm -hmm. or Titanic. You know, no one, no one's expecting that. What they want is to feel something. If you can make a film, whether it's a short or a feature or a documentary or a series or anything, and people feel something when they engage with what you've created, that is what matters. Don't hold back because you haven't got the best camera or Sam Raimi, when he made Evil Dead, invented the concept of Steadicam by putting a camera in the middle of a long plank of wood. And he had people, one person on either end of the plank of wood running with it. And because of leverage and the way levers work, the movement of them running across the ground was smoothed because the camera's in the middle of the plank and they're at either end. And he just came up with the concept of, of Steadicam. I mean, you know, Steadicam became a company and became a thing. It was springs and pneumatic, whatever. It's a totally different concept now. But the idea of using technology to smooth the movement of a camera that you are carrying was invented because Sam Raimi didn't have, hmm. he didn't have hmm. any other way of doing it. You mentioned a moment ago, your public speaking, and you have had a few lately that are amazingly interesting. Can, can yeah. you talk about the last couple of talks that you gave and what they were about? Oh, thank you for asking. Yeah. I, so unofficially, I spent about 20 years you know, trying to understand life, the universe and everything. I was a fan of the universe as a young child and I wanted mm -hmm. to understand how it worked. <laughs> and you and I have spoken before about Richard Bach. Uh, Richard Bach is my favorite author. He wrote a book called Illusions. Mm -hmm. I read Illusions when I was 11 years old and it just set me off on my spiritual journey. And I wasn't particularly attached to one or other belief system or mm -hmm. religion. I just wanted to understand, just wanted to understand what is this thing called life? So along the way, and for me, Film is an incredible opportunity to express those sorts of ideas and to explore them. It's experiential for the audience in very powerful ways because you literally experience what you witness. And so I, you know, what can I say? I was, I was excited to, to explore this stuff. And over the years, I've given a lot of presentations about film and media, and I speak at film festivals around the world. I speak at conferences, media technology in particular, VR, storytelling, that kind of stuff. But I was very grateful that a little while back, uh, you know, people started letting me speak more about this kind of um, like a practical philosophy, you know, the real, realism and how to um, how to just a perspective on things that is helpful, apt action rather than just being excitable. <laughs> <laughs> so. Uh, so Dell actually, were, were, a couple of years ago, uh, Dell, they have a venue on um, Main Street in um, during Sundance. And I go to Sundance every year. and uh, It's a great festival. And I did a session for them that was about post-production techniques because, of course, I'm known for that. I write books on it. 
But they also let me do a session about these sorts of ideas about, you know, for example, I think it's reasonable to argue that, that a human life is kind of a narrative. Our entire perception of ourselves is a story. We don't really know the facts. We construct explanations and significances. And on the basis of those, the ones that are persistent, we come to know as ourselves. And so what if we could, what if we could really have a perspective on that? What if we could choose the narrative that we're living? What would that be? So I was talking a bit about that. Mm-hmm. And about a year ago, IEEE, who are such an enormous organization, most people have never heard of them. Oh, I think that they're wonderful. Yeah. So they have this enormous new Future Leaders Conference. And last August, they uh, invited me to do the headline keynote, which I was really humbled and, and proud to be invited to do. And so it's a room full of engineers and future leader engineers. And I gave a, a one-hour keynote on volition, coercion, and decision-making for future leaders. It was voted the most, uh, the most uh, what's the word, the most highly rated session of the entire conference, which was <laughs> so... I'm not surprised. Oh, you know, come on. It's just, you know, people in America always joke that if you have a British accent, everyone will... Um, everyone will pay attention to you. And it's a superpower that <laughs> runs out as soon as you get back to London. It's it's the I am Jago, Maxim <laughs> Jago. I am Jago, Maxim Jago. And <laughs> they go ahead. <laughs> it's comparing me to Patrick Stewart now. So I've started practicing the uh, tea. Oh, oh. Gray, hot. <laughs> <laughs> Make it so. So uh, that's not me. I, I'm more the Jason Statham kind of guy. So I gave this presentation and what was lovely about it is that it's a set of principles. It's not a, a set of rules in specific context. It's a set of principles to ask yourself, you know, am I making this decision truly? Am I making this decision because I'm motivated by fear or love? It's going to be one or the other. Let's talk about that. And I was just talking about how we choose what we are. And my argument at the conclusion, you can watch it because they filmed it. They put it online. It's on YouTube. What was the title of this talk? So we can all find it. Future Leaders Forum Keynote 2018. If you you search for IEEE Max and Jago, it comes up on on Google. So I gave that presentation and they filmed it, which was lovely. And I've had really wonderful responses. And then this year at the same conference, I gave a keynote on what the word why means. Now, the conclusion of my previous session was I argued that although you can never really know the past, present or future of things, you don't really remember accurately, you don't know the future, you always know if you meant it. If you make a decision, do you really mean it? And if there is a measure by which we can gauge if we're truly alive, surely it has to be whether we meant it or not. And the kinds of films, do you, you know, you might say you're going to start getting up earlier in the morning, mm-hmm. but do you mean it? You, you might say that, you, that you're going to work hard. You might tell yourself you're going to work hard on a project. Mm-hmm. Do you mean it? You know, you know. And ultimately, the things that you mean are the things that become you. Mm -hmm. It becomes your experience. Mm -hmm. There's a lovely example of that I read online where somebody was saying, write down your list of priorities in life in order of priority. And then put that piece of paper to one side, get another piece of paper and write down what you did yesterday. Now take the first piece of paper, throw it in the trash and look at the piece of paper that describes what you did yesterday, because that is your actual <laughs> set of priorities. If you really want to know what's important to you, it's written right there because it's what you actually did. Fascinating. Mm. So then this year I was talking about what the word why means and, and how we justify or rationalize the choices that we make in life and how to make peace with that. And I argued that the only way to change yourself is to begin by knowing yourself. And the only way to truly know yourself is to know yourself without judgment. Because if you are judging yourself while you are exploring who you are, you're actually going to see the judgment. You're not going to see you. And so you're never going to know yourself. And it's only by knowing where you are that you can use a map to decide how to get to where you want to go. 
So it's crucial that you non-judgmentally self-accept and then you can think about whether you would like to be different, whether you want to be a different person. And so I argued that it's our consistent priorities that we come to know as ourselves. So anyway, I gave a presentation about that and it was nicely received. So, so this is the sort of stuff that I'm enjoying. And, mm-hmm. I, you know, I do keynotes for organizations and, and just help people to make peace with what they are and to make peace with what they want to be. Because life is should be existential joy, not existential angst. I so agree with you. I just so agree with you. You're a living example. The stuff that you've done and your your attitude to life and I, I think that goodness. a good life joyously lived is our legacy. And if you you think about what you want your children to remember when you're gone or the people that you meet when you go through life. Mm. You know, I was thinking a few years ago, what am I good at? What am I really good at? Yeah. Because uh, I have done so much. And what is the one thing that I'm really good at? And the answer that came is loving. That's fantastic. And then the next thought was, well, <laughs> then the next thought was, well, you can't make a living doing that. <laughs> and then the next thought was, it doesn't matter. It really doesn't matter. Yes. And with that cradled in my arms, with that, I go out every day and I just, I just, that's what I do. I just meet people and I find such amazing people. And it's just because I'm open to loving them. And without, without any kind of expectation of anything that's going to happen. But it's such a gift. And you do that with people. You, you have this brilliant mind. I always love talking with you. I'm just a fan of people. You are. <laughs> you, you, you are. And, and so I, I hope you do a lot more of these keynotes and I'm anxious to see the film. And I guess you have things you have to do today. I could talk to you for days on end. So you are now at the Toronto Film Festival. I'm sure it's going to be a very busy day. And then uh, you're on to Tokyo after that yes yes I've yeah been in Tokyo for three months uh if anybody wants to reach out and meet up and 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 hang out in tokyo i will be in shibuya for three months um it looks like i, I already might have to come back to the u.s in october i don't mind the long flight so i've got a few things to do but i will be mostly in in tokyo for, for a little under three months and i'm so excited to be there i'm going to learn japanese and I might take up Aikido. So I used to teach Tai Chi Chuan, but I'm, I'm really interested to learn Aikido as well. So that's kind of where I'm at. Okay, are you going to send more pictures of you walking on your hands? <laughs> <laughs> so my party trick is a handstand on my fingertips. And at the IEEE conference just in Pittsburgh just now, they, they insisted on having me up on in front of everybody doing fingertip handstands <laughs> to begin an evening of what I would describe as silliness. So I love it. Oh, Maxim, you are an amazing person and a dear friend. Thanks for taking the time to talk to us. And uh, please, everyone listening, listen closely to the advice that you're being given. It will save you years of walking down the wrong path and it will lead you to happiness. So everyone, remember what I always tell you, get up off your chair and go do something wonderful today. That was Maxim Jago, a futurist, a filmmaker, a keynote speaker, an amazing intellect, and somebody that we all need to follow. Thanks, Maxim. Wow. Goodness. Thank you so much. You you sure you don't want to work in marketing? (laughs) (laughs) That's great. Thank you. It's an absolute pleasure. I really appreciate you inviting me to join you today. 